Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Brookside, for the chance to be with you. It's a, it's a joy to be here in Omaha. Um, I want to start by talking with you about sports. Um, some of you in this area enjoy sports. I think there's a team out here that's been fairly successful in football, the Huskers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, well, I grew up reading Sports Illustrated, and so uh, I'm not super familiar with Nebraska. It's great to be here, but I do, I do know all about the Husker dynasty, Tommy Frazier, Tom Osborne, these names, right? So, uh, so it's an honor to be out here with you. Well, I grew up playing a slightly different sport, basketball, and I, I think uh, it's very interesting that you're seated on a basketball court. I really like that. It's very comforting to me as I'm looking out here at a basketball court. That, it, that is very uh, reassuring. Uh, and I, I don't know about you, some of you out there love sports. I grew up, you know, in the summer, you play. Maine is a cold state. Uh, I think Nebraska's somewhat similar uh, climate-wise. And so we don't get a ton of warm weather. Uh, so you learn to play basketball in your gloves, basically. But in the summer, you know, you would start out, maybe school is, is out. And uh, so I'd, I'd go outside, play some basketball. And by mid-afternoon, I would be flagging. You know, you'd be on the couch, just exhausted and, and wondering why. And the reason why, so often, was that, for whatever reason, I didn't really enjoy breakfast. You're getting a lot of information about me, by the way, but I didn't really enjoy breakfast. And so you eat, you know, a little granola bar. These granola bars are like this big. I don't know how they get classified as a piece of food, but I would do that. The problem that I encountered in my summer sporting soirees was that I did not have enough fuel, right? A common problem. I, I wasn't planning ahead. I hadn't put enough protein in my body, and so thus the reason for my lack of ultimate success in basketball. I want to suggest to you today that there is a correlation between this story and our spiritual lives. You may not like basketball, but I assume that you have a spiritual life, a walk with God, or you want to, or you're at least interested in it, in being here uh, today. Well, if you and I don't have adequate fuel spiritually, if we don't have theological protein, if you will, we will be flagging spiritually. We will be on the couch. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. Briefly, I want to give you a sense of how it is theology can fuel your spiritual life. Theology is a loaded term. It's divisive. Many people think that they have no claim on theology. Those who study theology are the geeks and the nerds. The rest of us just live out our Christian walk, try to follow Jesus, and, and maybe even try to stay away from theology. Perhaps we've been burned by someone who had a deep love for theology but used that to, to sort of beat people over the head. I don't know what your experience is, but I want you to know this morning that theology is for you. Every single person in this room has a purchase on theology. What is theology, though? It's just this. Applying the Bible to all of your life. That's what theology is at base. All of the Bible for all of your life. That's all it is. So theology is for all of us. I want to give you four different points on why, then, we need theology. Let's flesh this out. My first point is this. We need theology to be transformed. Point one, we need theology to be transformed. And we're going to Romans 12, 1 and 2, to uh, investigate this. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're at an interesting starting point here. Right off the bat, we learn that God wants us to be transformed. Well, that's interesting. Why does he want us to be transformed? What, why is there a need for transformation right off the bat here? Because of sin. Sin. The Apostle Paul has talked about this already in the letter to the Romans. In chapters 1 through 3, he lays out the human condition. He shows the Romans and all of us what the fundamental problem is with humanity. Sin. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So here's what has happened in terms of this equation of sin. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve, we have all become sinners by our nature. Nobody has to persuade us to become a sinner, right? Nobody walked up to you earlier in your life and said, hey, I have a great life plan for you. It's called sin. Let's do this. Do you want to do this? With your kids, right? With, with children. You didn't indoctrinate them in sin. Well, you kind of did because you're a sinner. But you didn't, you didn't sit them down for a course, right, and say, okay, or I didn't do this with my son. Gavin, you're one. I want you to start disobeying your mom. Okay, this is important. When she tells you to come so you can be changed, I want you to run the opposite way as fast as you can. I didn't say that to my son, did I? And you didn't say that to your kids. Or if you're a child, nobody trained you in that. It just came naturally. Why? Because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, ate the forbidden fruit, Genesis 3, and fell. A curse was made upon all humanity. Now, this meant that all of us became affected by sin. A lot of times we evangelicals think that our heart is sinful. That's true, tragically. But so is our mind. Our mind is affected by sin. Theologians call this the noetic effects of the fall, if you want a fun term. Nous in Greek, N-O-U-S, means mind. So noetic refers to the mental, intellectual effects of the fall on our person. What does this mean? This means that our mind, heart, body, all faces corruption, is under the influence of sin. And mentally, this means that we don't think rightly outside of Christ. Now, I don't mean that we can't learn basic math. We can. Two plus two equals four. You could know that whether you are an atheist or a Christian. I don't mean that we can't reason. I don't mean that we can't use logic. We can learn US history. Okay, we can learn all sorts of things. But we can't know, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, we can't ultimately know truth. We can't know, for example, why we're here. Why are we here in our sin, left to ourselves? Why are we here? I don't know. We can't know what is wrong with humanity. We know if we're honest, something is wrong. 
Something is wrong out there, which everybody wants to affirm. Something's wrong out there, but something's also wrong in us. We don't know, outside of Christ, why people walk into schools and shoot six-year-olds. This is not me being morose. This is cold, hard fact. This is the world we live in, the air we breathe. Why do people do that? You can be brilliant in your field, but if you do not know the Lord, you do not know ultimate truth. You can't know these realities. So this, then, is what happens when the mercies of God from chapter 12 of Romans take root in us. All of a sudden, our eyes are opened to see true truth. Francis Schaeffer coined that term, true truth, the truth that is above all other truths. Suddenly, we, we have a panoramic perspective on the world. We get it. doesn't mean that we become God. We don't have God's actual mind, but we have God's word. And so we learn truth about the world. We, we learn from John 1, the gospel of John, that Jesus Christ is the true light, the light which enlightens everyone in the world. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the one in whom we find truth. Outside of Jesus, there is no truth that we can find. But in Jesus, our mind is resurrected. That's really what we're talking about when we're talking about transformation and renewal. Jesus, as you may know, was crucified for our sin to wash his people clean, and he was resurrected to have power over the grave. And that power is not just felt in the moment of your conversion. Gloriously, it is felt then, but it's also felt all your life. All your life is a process of resurrection, of transformation, of renewal. You were created to glorify the Lord. You were created for passion. You were created for joy. You were created for pleasure. The problem is in our sin, we pursue the wrong kinds of these things. But it's not pleasure. It's not passion. It's not joy. That's the problem. It's our sin directing us the wrong ways. So what happens when Jesus seizes us is that all of our being is resurrected in this glorious process. And this means that we then are able to experience on a daily basis the renewal of our mind. So this process of resurrection, of renewal, of transformation has already happened. God has pushed the button and started it. There's nothing we did uh, in cooperating with God to, to make ourselves push that button. God saved us. But, but, just like all your spiritual life, you have to work. You have to get busy. Think about it. If, if you say, I want to be holy, I want to be a holy person, I can see that I need to grow. Do you wait each morning on your bed for the daily download, the zap of holiness? You know, you're just sort of laying there. Maybe you hook a cord up to your mind like your iPad or something, and you're just waiting for the zap. No, you're not doing that, right? You know that if you're going to be holy, you have to get after it. You have, to, you have to work. You have to get out of bed. You have to read your Bible. You have to pray. You have to do the things that, that lead your heart towards God, because otherwise it won't, will it? It won't. It's true of all of us. The same is true of your mind. You have to lead your mind towards transformation by the power of the Spirit. The fundamental way you do this is by studying the Bible. 
This is how God renews us and transforms us. He, he puts his word in front of us and he helps us to read it and understand it. If you're thinking, I need to grow, I need to understand God better, I need to know him better, and that's true for all of us, the simple key to unlock that door is to study the scripture, to pray to God for insight and, and effort and the grace to keep going and then to put that word in front of you. This is going to mean, as we study the scripture, praise God that that, that never turns up bankrupt. You know that? You never put in effort for the Lord by the Spirit's power through the gospel. You never put in that effort and then find that God didn't show up. If we draw near to him, he draws near to us. So that's the incredible truth. This is, this is a can't-fail proposition for you and me. If we will, know theology, which is to know the Bible. That's all it is. God will show up and he will change us. We will be better parents. You can't improve on biblical wisdom. We will know why people do terrible things because of sin. We will understand why we are here. Perhaps you feel adrift right now. Perhaps you don't have direction. There's no plan. You see other people who have plans, family members to help them come up with a plan, get them started on the right way. You don't have it. Scripture is your solace. Scripture will give you that plan. God will, will help your life take shape as you seek to live life for his glory. There is much more we can say, but for right now, on this point, we need to, we need to know. Being mentally transformed is not an option for Christians. It's not dry or dull either. We're not talking about boring study that you're just yawning through. We're talking about full-throated transformation. The second reason we need theology is because we need to separate good from evil. We need to separate good from evil. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Look there with me. The author says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So think about this metaphor here, milk and meat. It's like a child, right? I don't help my wife make food for Gavin, my aforementioned son, and heat up, you know, a T-bone, right, with a side of creamed mashed potatoes and some green beans. No, I, he, he's had milk so often to this point in his life because he can't handle more complex food. The same is true of us spiritually. Younger in our Christian journey, we can't handle a lot of the complex stuff, right? We're not ready, so we need milk. The problem, though, is when we stay there. You're not supposed to stay there. That's what the author is saying here. We're all tempted to do that. But the author of this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, wants them to advance in righteousness, wants them to grow, wants them to give God more glory. How? Through meat, studying the meat, the rich, thick, glorious, excellent, virtuous stuff of the Bible. The author wants the Hebrews to become skilled in the word of righteousness in order 
ultimately, that they would distinguish evil from good. Now, this is interesting. Outside of the Spirit working in our hearts, outside of the gospel, we're not going to understand evil and good. We're going to call one the other and the other the other. We're going we're to say, in other words, evil is good and good is evil. You, you think about this in modern culture. A lot of our movies nowadays, TV shows, have anti-heroes. You familiar with this? If you're looking at the cultural media, if you like that sort of thing, if you like movies, as I, I enjoy them, you find all these anti-heroes. The, you find some heroes, The Hobbit or something like this, but you find a lot of anti-heroes. Figures who we're supposed to cheer for, but not because of their inherent goodness, because they're inherently mixed. Now, we are all mixed, so let that be said. But if we're not careful, we can fall into that kind of mindset as Christians, calling evil good and good evil. This is what the Word of God does. It brings clarity. It dispels the fog so that we can see good from evil and cleave and cling to the good. So we need to train our powers of discernment, in other words. Do you know this about your spiritual life? You are supposed to be training yourself just like you train yourself at work. Just like in your vocation, your calling, whether it's homemaker, lawyer, construction worker, whatever it may be, you are supposed to be picking up skills, aren't you? You're supposed to be advancing, right? You don't want to be where you were 10 years ago. That, that would not please you, I would guess, in your work. You want to grow. The same is supposed to be true of you as a Christian. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens by effort. As you pray to God for power and he grants it, and then you act. Now, you may not have a hankering, okay? Let me, let me say this. You may not have a hankering to determine how many angels dance on the head of a pin. The proverbial goofball question of theology, right? We've all heard that referenced. The answer is 2,211. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's a bad theology joke, isn't it? Perhaps, as I mentioned earlier, you've had a bad experience with someone who liked theology, right? That, that happens. So perhaps you do not find yourself initially wanting to study theology. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Theology is not only for the nerds. It is not only the geeks who will inherit the earth. Everyone is called by Scripture to train themselves to love more complex spiritual food. Theology, you see, is for life. Theology is so that you would thrive as a Christian. It's not so that you would feel inferior intellectually. If someone has given you that impression, let me disabuse you of it. It is so that you would grow. It is so that you would love Christ, your Savior. This is true, by the way, to a special degree for parents. If you are a parent, you are a teacher. Every Christian, in fact, is a theologian. As a parent, you have to, you have to ante up. You have people to teach in the faith. You're the one who is called. You know, you have help from the church, praise God, abundant help. But you're the one who should be spending the most time with them and should be training them. And every father is the shepherd of a home. So there's a, a double duty there. Now, this doesn't mean that every parent needs to go to seminary or Bible college or something, but that, that's fine. But you can equip yourself wherever you are, whether you have ever cracked the page of a theology book of any kind or not. You can grow. You can lead your family so that Satan does not prey on them. 
you have that ability, by the grace of God, to do all you can to train them. You can't guarantee their salvation, but you can do your level best to make it so that when you launch them and they get out in the, in the big bad world, they are not taken captive by satanic philosophies and evil things. And we have all seen that happen. I teach at a college. I see it happen with students who are not well-trained and, and they are liable to be preyed upon. You as a parent can do your part meaningfully to equip your children. There are resources that are available to you in English that stun the mind. Do you know this? There are more books out there on good theology, knowing the Bible, than you could ever read. Here are a few, okay, if you, if you just want to get started. Here's a few up here. First, Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine. Okay, Wayne Grudem is, a, is an evangelical systematic theologian, and uh, he is a powerhouse dude. He wrote a systematic theology textbook that is a thousand pages long. I happily, gleefully assign it to my students at, uh, at the Bible college and also at the seminary. I teach some classes at the seminary. And, and I just say, unapologetically, learn this. You know, this is good for you. You want this. If you go to medical school, you want to dig into your studies, right? Same thing at a, at a Christian school. Wayne Grudem's Bible doctrine, though, is a simplification. <laughs> it's only 500 pages, okay? Uh, so, so it's simplified <laughs> from the systematic theology. It is a great, easy-to-read, uh, comprehensive intro to theology, okay? J.I. Packer's Knowing God, marvelously readable, even more simplified than, than Grudem's book, about 200 pages. Bruce Ware's Brig, uh, excuse me, Big Truths for Young Hearts. This is a book that is designed to do exactly what I'm talking about. It's designed for you as a parent to be able to read it and to profit from it and then also to teach your kids basic truths of theology. So that may, may be of interest to you. I'd strongly commend that. John Piper's God is the Gospel. Love Piper's material. Um, this is a helpful introduction to it. And then there's a little book that I wrote with uh, my doctoral supervisor at Trinity, Doug Sweeney, on heaven and hell. I, I only put it up here because heaven and hell are challenged doctrines today. Um, you, you may know this. But there's a pressure on us Christians to believe that everybody is supposed to go to heaven no matter what they do, outside of any concerns for God's holiness. And that nobody actually ends up in hell. For example, a gifted pastor and theologian named Rob Bell recently taught through a book called Love Wins that everybody basically in the end is going to be saved, which I believe is not the teaching of Scripture. The way to salvation is narrow. So that is a book that can, that can give you some insight into that. Jonathan Edwards, so you know, is America's greatest theologian and philosopher, and it's a very small, simplified version of that. Let me give you one story, though, before we transition that might encourage you in this. Perhaps you're thinking, okay, great. I mean, this is all very interesting. Thank you for coming and saying all these, these things, but I don't really know if this can work. Uh, this isn't really how I'm, a, I'm attuned. I don't really work this way. There's a church in Maryland, Covenant Life Church. How many people here have heard of Joshua Harris, the guy who kissed dating goodbye very famously? Some of you have heard of him. Okay. There's a youth group at this church, a big, thriving youth group, and it realized that its youth were not getting enough food, meat. And so what did they do? They bought hundreds of copies of Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine, and they gave them to the youth, and they just walked through it. And so the youth, over the course of many weeks, picked up all these terms they didn't know, studied all these scriptures they'd never seen, discuss theology, 14-year-olds, can you believe this? We are trained by many people in our, 
in our world to think that 14-year-olds can't do anything except play or something like this, play kickball in, in youth group. Well, I love kickball. I love dodgeball. Youth group is a blast, and it should be. It should be fun, I think. It should be fun to be around your peers. But think about this. Many young people today can play four hours straight of video games, right? Many young people today can watch a three-and-a-half-hour NFL football game and be attuned to the inner statistics involved, right? I mean, they, the statistical analysis on the ESPN networks of football boggles the mind. It, it, it's remarkable. If we can study those things, we can study the Word of God. Can we not? This was true for this church. The youth began to outpace the adults in knowing God. They pushed their parents to know God more because it, it didn't fall flat, this effort to read more about theology, the Bible. It pushed them. It changed them. It will change you. It will change me. Have the goal of building your faith, your own faith, your family's faith, your roommate's faith, those around you. Have a goal. You didn't set out in your life to live in a cardboard box. You want intuitively to build something that will be a blessing to you and others, right? In terms of a home. Have the same mentality with your faith, with your spirituality. Build something. Don't be caught on your heels. Build something great. Set out on it. Try. Pray to God for grace. Okay, thirdly, we need theology to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. This is our third reason. 1 John 4, 13 through 15. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I want you to think about this idea freshly. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, and you're familiar with this phrase, and it can tend for, for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, or even short time, to have it just pass through your ears, right? Jesus is the Son of God. Sure, I believe that. This is not intended to be like voting. You have not merely voted for Jesus. You have not walked in somewhere into some spiritual uh, voting booth checked a box, pulled a lever, whatever it may be, and walked out. In confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, though it seems simple, you have actually made a profound decision to follow the Lord of heaven and earth. Do you see that? It is simple. Let me say that. It is simple. Because it's Jesus or nothing, right? It's not complicated. Either Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, as he says he is, or he's not. So that's simple. I'm fine with that. I'm good with that. In another sense, though, this is the truth that claims all of you. I had a friend on Facebook say, I am so glad that when Jesus called us to himself, he did not say, you have to sign the Nicene Creed, one of the early church confessions about who God was and what the Bible was. In other words, he was saying, when Jesus called his disciples, remember John 1? He simply said, follow me. Follow me. That's all. So my friend was saying, you don't have to assent to all this doctrine. 
all this stuff. That, that just gets in the way. That's just man-made. No, you just follow Jesus. Again, following Jesus is simple. Jesus or nothing. But think about this afresh. I actually think it's far worse. I actually think it's far more intense than my friend thought. I think that those two words, follow me, or confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, three words, are unbelievably commitment heavy. Jesus is calling you and me and his disciples who were minding their own business, by the way, fishing, right? A number of them were fishers of men. They're just doing work as we all do on a daily basis. And Jesus comes to them and he says, follow me. And they just leave their stuff. Do you ever think about that? That seems almost, it's not rude, but it's a little bit shocking, isn't it? That Jesus would just come to somebody and reorient the entire course of their life. That's what he does. Do you know why? Because he is the alpha and the omega. He is the the train coming into the station. There's no other train coming. There's been no other train coming. This is it. If you want eternal life, you must ascend this ladder. You must cling to this cross. This is the one to follow. Do you see that? That means you're supposed to give Jesus everything. It's way, way more intense than just checking a box, saying you're going to follow somebody, filling out a card. It's all of your existence given over to Jesus. So in fact, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is utterly transformative. It changes the entire course of your soul. And think about this in terms of missions, by the way. This confession, I'm sure that this church supports missions. I saw videos up there that that show that it does. So you're giving to missions work. Sometimes we pit theology against missions or thinking against doing. Some people over there, they think they get lost in their debates. I'm over here and I do. I get after it. And, And the two groups stay apart from one another and kind of picket one another. In actuality, the two groups are joined inescapably. If you are giving up everything to go to a faraway country where your throat could be slit because you say those three words, Jesus is the Son of God, Son of God, what is more theological than that? That's the most profound theological confession I've ever heard. God is is not one person, as Islam claims. God is three persons, fully God, in the Godhead. That's simple to confess at one level, but it's incredibly profound, is it not? So all of our life, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, is theological. There's nothing deeper than that. And we shouldn't be scared of that. We shouldn't be scared of deep stuff as believers. We shouldn't get nervous if somebody starts talking about theology or things, deep truths of the Bible. We prize study and thinking in other fields, don't we? We do. You do not go for your checkup or for surgery, let's say, and your doctor walks in and says, how you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm looking forward to getting through the surgery. Thank you. Okay, well, just so you know, as a doctor, I haven't really ever done any surgery. I'm kind of new at this. Oh, we say, okay, what does that mean? I've never actually studied medicine. I just really like medicine. I like surgery. 
we would run from that room kicking and screaming, right? That would shock us. Getting on a plane. I got on a plane to come here, Southwest, right? If a pilot came on over the intercom and said, hey, everybody, really glad you're on board. Thanks for buying tickets on Southwest. Just so you know, I've actually never flown. Uh, but I really love flying. It, it seems really fun. Once again, we would be stunned out of our minds. We prize study. We prize serious engagement with, with disciplines, with truth, with pursuits. The same should be true of our Christian faith, right? We should prize study. Study is not the enemy of godliness. It fuels godliness. Think about this in a practical example. One, one practical example. Theology changes our lives. Think about grief. My school, Boyce College, just had a student uh, be killed in a car accident. It's the first student I've ever lost as a young professor. It was incredibly impactful. Knowing that this young man had staked his whole life on the gospel to, to tell other people about the salvation offered in the cross of Christ was incredibly comforting. Knowing that to die is not truly to die. To go in the grave as a Christian is only to wait to be raised. Shelby Smith will be raised on the last day. More than that, he will reign with God for all eternity. What have I just said? theological truths, things we put together from the Bible. Theology, though, we see is for life. That's for hope. That's for, for comfort, right? Those of us who deal with this kind of tragedy and tragedy will come to all of us. It will land at all of our doorsteps. None of us can avoid it in a fallen world. When you are geared up to handle that and to glorify God as Job did in the midst of it, you are, you are showing the fruit of a profoundly theological life, whether or not you know it. Fourthly, we need theology to love and obey God. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. I have 34 through 40 up on the screen, but I'm just going to read you 37. Jesus is speaking with a, a lawyer, a Pharisee, and he says to him in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God. This is the greatest commandment in the entire Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, we are familiar with the heart part, with the soul part, but God is deeply glorified when you love God with your mind in, in at least two ways by studying God in the ways that we have talked about, getting to know his word, and also in your everyday life, thinking well, thinking rightly, loving truth. That's loving God with your mind. That's not disconnected from Christian faith. Christian faith is not only when you feel warm things in your heart towards God. Christian faith is felt when you are studying and learning and soaring in your discipline, in your field, in your work. To know God, God is intensely glorified in the life of the mind. Never think that he's not. That's what Jesus says. It's the greatest commandment. And Jesus changes the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy. It's heart, soul, and strength there. Jesus changes strength 
from the Old Testament to the New Testament, to mind, which shows how much Jesus prizes your mind and mine. So this is true for you and me as Christians. When we love God with our mind, we find the means to obey him and to enjoy him. It's impossible, I think, to truly appreciate God outside of this kind of pursuit. Think about a marriage. Uh, Those of us who are married know that you don't love somebody abstractedly. You don't love, if you're a guy, women in the abstract. You love a woman, a person. Same is true for a woman loving a man, a husband. You have to learn your spouse, right? To show them the greatest degree of love. Is this not true? Uh, I used to buy my wife roses. I assumed, erroneously, that all women categorically like roses. Seemed like a basic assumption to me. I was proven wrong on that. My wife, somewhat uh, hesitatingly, because she's sweet, informed me that she doesn't really like roses. She likes tulips better. Fair enough. Tulips it will be. (laughs) I, I love my wife, not simply when I say, I love you. I just love you. But when I, what? Learn her. Study her. Get to know who she actually is, not just who I think she should be or is. The same is true with God. We show we love God when we learn him. And he offers us abundant opportunity to learn him. As I said earlier, he will never deny us. Do you know that about God? You never go to God for grace. You never go to God for power over temptation. You're on the internet and some stupid tempting thing pops up. And you think, I need grace. I need to overcome this, close this. You never go to God in prayer and say, God, can you give me grace? Can you just help me to be strong in the face of temptation? And God says, sorry, busy. God never turns you down. And he will never, he will never turn you down as you seek to love him with your mind in order that you might enjoy him. Pastor Jonathan Edwards, as we move rapidly to a close. Jonathan Edwards said this. He was an 18th century Massachusetts pastor, so I feel something of a kinship with him being from Maine. He said this uh, in the course of his, uh, his career. I'll read it quickly and then just say a couple words about it. The more you have of a rational knowledge of the things of the gospel, the more opportunity will there be when the Spirit shall be breathed into your heart to see the excellency of these things and to taste the sweetness of them. So that's an 18th century statement. All Edwards is saying is this. The more you store up knowledge in your mind about God, the more as you live and work and go about your daily duties and raise a family and seek the Lord's glory, the more you will experience the love of God in those pursuits. In other words, you never store up knowledge and it just goes in the attic or the shed. It never gets accessed. It's all, to return to our original analogy, it's all going to be fuel for a God-glorifying, exhilarating, theocentric, Christ-saturated life. Pray with me.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you offer us the opportunity to know you and wherever we are in our lives to jumpstart a godly life. Father, this is one of the sweetest things of all the scripture. The idea that wherever we are, whether we have pursued you in the past, whether uh, we have known you as a Christian, we've been saved. Right now, you offer us the opportunity to grow and to change and to love Jesus Christ. We pray that we would do just that in coming days. In his name, amen.